with pleasure, um, I'm introducing the presidential address, our um, ex-president, yes, and um, farm system scientist based in Invermay, and David has been uh, both fantastic in the executive, and uh, I've known him through his working life and uh, all the all the papers he's given, and great supporter of Grasslands, and a fantastic speaker at Field Days. So I'd like you to join me in welcoming uh, uh, David. Uh, thank you, Graham. Uh, this is this is the last opportunity for me to say something outrageous. So here it goes. Um, Tenakoto. That's it. No, just kidding. Applied agricultural research. We've heard a lot about that over the last two or three days and probably in the last 12 months. And where is the future? Where are we going? And it's interesting that when we look back through the proceedings over the last probably 30 odd years and potentially beyond that, um, we see presidents stand up at the front and say, we need more of it. So there you go, that's the take home message right there. Interestingly enough, um, they all provide different commentary at different times about the circumstances that they're in. So I want to just give you a little bit of a flavour of my take on a wee bit on where we've been in recent times in terms of uh, the funding and the, and the landscape in which we're doing it, and then some of the challenges that I see that we need to rise to um, as an organisation and as, a, as an industry going forward. Pat Garden, in his Levy oration, raised the question, are we running out of ideas? He posed the argument that uh, research and ideas function under the law of diminishing returns. So the more problems we solve, the harder it gets to solve the next problem. The more resources are required to solve that problem. And the interesting thing is, for example, on the field day the other day, we talked about where does the nitrate go under a legume crop? And that actually is a really hard question. We've got some broad principles, but to really understand that, we need to dig a lot deeper and we need to spend a lot of money doing it. So what we've done is some man fantastic productivity and efficiency gains. But we are starting to run out of opportunities to make really large change unless we make full systems change. And our Lucerne example is, is a shining light in that space where we make system change. So should we continue to polish the present or should we seek some rough new diamond? And that is something quite key. Callaghan in 2009, if anybody remembers his book, From Wool to Wetter, Transforming New Zealand's Culture and Economy, outlined a manifesto of science investment that has prompted a significant change in the research landscape in New Zealand. That book is landmark. Nine years ago, the incoming national government put that manifesto into play, and in one of those um, was to put in the Primary Growth Partnership Program. Now, implicit in that strategy were two objectives. The first was to encourage partnership between ag businesses and science providers. Absolutely laudable aim. The second was to entice agribusiness to invest more 
in research and development. Again, a very fine aim. Unfortunately, applied agricultural research, especially in the pastoral space, has been a casualty of the implementation of both of those plans, both the Callaghan and the PGP strategies. While significant funding has been leveraged from agribusiness, and the PGPs have a total value of over 750 million, over seven years, mind you, so always remember when politicians tell you the big number, they're not telling you the detail. This has not been a replacement for applied research funding for research providers. So let's have a think about what happened, or what has happened over that time. Let's think about science itself. Science is a specialised process. Scientists will hold a doctorate qualification most commonly, and it will take them seven to ten years to complete. Technicians are most likely to hold a science degree these days and potentially some form of postgraduate training. And along with that, they usually get at least five years worth of training in the industry before they are considered fully trained. Now that's the depth of training that is required to fully understand the scientific method and how to apply it. That is significant. So the first issue when we place control in the, of funding in the hand of agribusiness is the potential lack of capacity to effectively engage in the science process. And another issue that comes up alongside that is about the dialogue. Now the language of science is quite specific and some of you in the audience may have noted that you didn't quite understand what he said when he was up the front, when he was talking about you know, replicated trials and stuff like that. It is a complex uh, process and it's a complex language. If the funders don't understand the language that the scientists are talking, then the dialogue becomes decidedly ineffective and disengagement occurs. Learning the language of science has actually been described as being as difficult as learning a language of another nation. So it's not surprising that communications will break down. Hand signals don't cut it when we're trying to talk real detail. Another point here is that the science community is actually a significant repository of knowledge. Having spent so long training and working in the space, they provide the opportunity to filter ideas. And so often we say, well, we need to be following what the stakeholder wants. Quite often we can say, that's already been done. So we just need to apply it. Look, go and look there. And again, that's what the New Zealand Grassland Association does. It provides that repository of what we've done before. So inside the funding bodies, that lack of knowledge can lead to reinventing the wheel. The saying that you don't know what you don't know is extremely important. And engaging with the science community helps avoid that trap. Now some examples of where the PGP process really worked was actually where agribusiness understood the science process or took the time to understand that process. And so we have examples of that. We have the Ravensdowns, the Balancers and the Fonterras who actually have their own science processes and therefore they understand and they know the, know the, they know the talk. And so they, they have, um, have been able to engage effectively. But the real problem where it was less successful is where that language 
wasn't shared. Some other industries, there's another thought here, and we've talked about this a wee bit over the uh, last couple of days as well, is about a sense of community. So where you had the wine industry, who actually had science sector as part of their broader community, then those conversations were easy to have, and the trust was there to capture the benefits of those new funding models. Another factor which emerged out of this whole, this last um, nine years worth of, of experimentation in science funding, shall we say, was the attempt to do research with in-house resources. Again, if the expertise about the science process was lacking, then what happens is the focus of what the people talk about tends towards the familiar. They don't want to step into unknown territory. And finally, and this is very, really important, a significant portion of those funds not went into, did not go into innovation and science, but they went into marketing and extension. This wasn't the original intent of the funds, not when it first started, but it became a focus. Now that focus was decidedly real, and there were significant gaps. And so the opportunity to fill those gaps with money was important to the industries. So we can't deny that it was a choice that was made that, was, um, that provided them with something they needed. Now the gap in extension is actually probably one of the last hangovers of the imposition of Rogenomics. And, and we had Rob Gollum up here last night talking about the fact that he was employed by math. And he did also say something about being an old bugger like myself. With that dismantling and reorganisation of ag support and the disbanding of MAF, those people were dispersed through the industry. And that was a fine thing at the time. However, we haven't had a training programme since of anything like that order of magnitude. And so the, with our workers retiring in ever-increasing numbers, we've actually revealed a massive shortage in that space. And so within the PGP program, there has been a focus on trying to rebuild those networks and those skills, and rightly so. Unfortunately, that's at the expense of applied science. And then finally, in terms of identifying value chains as opportunities, this is something which we have talked about for years. I, my first report that I saw about 1975 that said the way of the future is to add value to our product. How many of the people in this audience, put your hands up, have read a report like that over the last 50 years? Come on, hands up. Those of you who haven't, go and read one. They're quite entertaining. <laughs> However, there has been little emphasis or funding put into that space. And when the companies were given the opportunity, they took it. And again, a, an entirely logical and rational decision. So that comes around full circle to Callaghan who basically espoused the position that we need to add value, not production. And that's fair enough. We've all talked about it for a very long time. The companies were given money and they grabbed a hold of it. So what of applied research? There are two trends that have been evident inside that process. One is the balance of power that has shifted away from government-owned entities such as CRIs and has gone into the hands of agribusiness through that process. Like I say, and then they do needs must. And they figure out 
how they can how they can leverage what they need to do. This has been evidenced particularly strongly in the institutes such as AgriSearch. And if you have a look in our annual reports, you will find that since the national government came into power, there has been a reduction in science staff from 300, oh, sorry, from 650 down to 390. And that's in nine years. That's kind of significant. And then when our um, stakeholders say, gee, you guys should be delivering more to us, we are going, with what? So whether that balance of power will remain may well um, depend on the outcome of the last election. And so with optimism, I look forward to the future. The second trend in all of this process, particularly in science funding, has been uh, a, an extension of science to look at what I call gadgets, widgets, and value chains as our focus. Now those trends don't preclude applied agricultural science, but provide a much more succinct target than production and efficiency generally that drove the last um, gains in the industry since the 1880s deregulation. So those foci should actually reinvigorate our implied science sector. That should be, be, should be where we're looking. In fact, ch changes in the MB Endeavour Fund now encourage taking risks and they encourage taking a long-term view. They want a 20-year time frame in the view that scientists have. Unfortunately, what we've seen in the near past, uh, scientists, although they're thinking big, trying to fit everything into single programs. So we've had some very, very large programs bid to Enby, and Enby hasn't got that much money. It's all in the PGPs. It leads to overambitious projects that are usually too expensive. Now this may be an artefact of the past 25 years where we haven't had the opportunity to, to have that vision and we've looked at incremental predictive requirements that the funding agencies want, although it may just be due to the absolute optimism that lives in the science community. So where do we go from here? And that's the important thing. How do we grab a hold of the technologies that are coming along and mould them in an applied science way to be disruptive? and to make those step changes. How about we take, for example, virtual fencing. Everybody heard of virtual fencing? Heard of that? Let's take the eShepherd. Now, the eShepherd is a, in the final stages of prototype development by a company called Agisons. Now, that technology, the technology that underpins the success of that is not the GPS that's in it, it's not the solar panels that sit on the back of it so that it's powered independently as the animal can be 30 kilometres away from home. It's not the LoRa networks that drive the signal to those fences. And it's not the pulse system that delivers the message to the animal to make sure that it turns away from the fence. The patents that actually protect that tool are the 20 years of animal behaviour work that drives the training and the control systems that they have inside that technology. So it has nothing to do, like I say, with all the high-tech bits. It has everything to do with the applied science that went on for 20 years to create that control. And so that's an example 
of harnessing the power of those, the applied research that went on. And since I've had the call, I'll cut out the first, the next three quarters of the talk. Um, so what are some of the disruptive technologies that we should be thinking about? And I, what, what I'm doing here, I'm just going to raise some stuff, all right? This is not the answer or anything else. This is just my opinion of some of the things that we need to think about. Now, Morris York, thanks Morris, in his presidential address in 2001, picked up a couple of papers and he said these could change the future. And one of those was the identification of the changes in fatty acid meat content of lambs on different pasture species. And we saw some more of that knowledge being presented yesterday um, with Ronaldo. What we see in hindsight here is actually the potential for beginnings of a new value chain. This product is pasture fed, is high health, it has a high eating experience, and it fulfills the niche of some discerning consumer on the other side of the world to meet their taste, their ethical and their health needs. Now 20 years later, we are actually seeing brands emerge based on that research. We see beef EQ, we see the Omega lamb, we see coastal spring lamb, where we're starting to think about how we apply that research to the value chain. So what about digital ag? Again, we see papers here around that whole space. We had a couple yesterday talking about precision fertiliser. There are others talking about precision water, water application. Gives us a glimpse of the future. Now, digital ag is a, is a huge space. And the British government, for example, last year poured £120 million into establishing three research centres that are going to deal to this. And they split them up into three areas. They split them up into big data. It's an organisation called Agrimetrics. Little data, which they call precision livestock farming, and robotics, called Agritech. And uh, Murray Lane yesterday put up the whole, do we even need a driver and a tractor anymore? Now, harnessing data is really, really challenging. And that's why the British government has put so much money up front into trying to grab a hold of that. Who's time to that? Okay, I'm okay for time. Cool. I'm not okay for time. Yeah. Um, what the collection and use of vast amounts of data brings with it are new questions, not only about the collection itself, but about the validity of the data, about the management of the data and the storage of the data. But it also brings the question is who we need to empower with that data. So who is the decision maker and how do they use it? Now, all of these things are not in the realm of the applied scientist at the biological level. So what we see is actually we need to embrace the data scientists and the mathematicians because they're the ones who start that process. And what they always hope is, especially with big data, is if you analyse it hard enough, something will pop out that's useful. The point with the applied science end of this process is we need to be there to guide them to say, well, no, that's just an aberration. It might be statistically significant, as somebody pointed out yesterday, but biologically it's not going to make a difference. 
It might be statistically significant, but when we apply it in the milieu of things that go on on a farm, in the complexity of that system, it will be buried. We need to help them with that. So we need to marry up those skills. We need to invite them into our community and uh, make sure that we can invest and implement the opportunity that sits in that whole area of data analysis. Let's think about one of our own examples. Take, for example, the Farm IQ project. Now, there's been a total of about 124 million invested in Farm IQ over seven years. And it had a lot of strings to it. There was a lot of things went on in that program. The Farm IQ software that everybody knows provides the farmers with the opportunities to capture individual livestock records, paddock records, uh, stock movements, health and safety, environmental planning, there's a whole raft of things that it does. The investment in this one part of that program has been rumoured, and I will just say rumoured, to be around about half of the total spend. So will this investment be recovered by commercialisation? Now that's quite open. I'm not going to pass judgement on that. But the consequence is the growing awareness that this type of software can bring and the power that it can bring to on-farm decision making. So our next generation of farmers will be looking at those tools and they will be making decisions based on those tools. And those tools are based on all of the applied science that we have done in the past. And so that's where we need to make sure that we look very hard at how we do that. We've seen hyperspectral analysis talked about in this, and again we go, is that ever going to make it over the line? The point is, when you are starting up a new technology, you have to invest very heavily in making that work. So we have to recognise the evolution of research and science. Applied research comes from some basic discovery science. But however, the, the, number, the science of numbers, mathematics, appears to be evolving into a significant force in agriculture. And so we need to engage with new minds and new skills to take us forward. However, the final interpretation of that information has to be by people who understand the biology of the systems that fuel our farming communities. Our next steps must be to embrace, embrace these new skill sets and learn how to capture the benefits of the technologies that are being provided for us and to grab a hold of the insight that the analysis of that data may provide. Using that power will enable us to take the next steps in honing our farming practices or reconfiguring our farming systems to provide value to our customers. Thank you.